Hey, y'all, we want to take a second here to go ahead and give a shout out to our favorite mortgage lender and the official lender of the Hunt Lift Eat podcast. That's Casey Burns. He's a mortgage broker with Prime Lending. I bought my house here in Colorado with Casey and I refinanced the property in Tennessee. And I was going to use Casey for that because I had such a great experience. And Casey told me, hey, man, like I'll be straight up with you. I can't. I can't match this other offer. So go with these other guys. Well, I went with those other guys and I regretted it. It was like a three month process for the refi. When I, when I bought my house here in Colorado, it was the easiest transaction for real estate I've ever had in my life. He handles everything. Like he has the heart of an educator, the heart of a teacher. And that's why we recommend him. I've known him for 10 years. I was best friends with his brother in college. I'm still good friends with Casey to this day. And we, we recommend him because of how good he is. So if you want to utilize Casey, give him a call, find out any information. Give him a shout at 919-710-1864. Or you can also reach him at email at casey.burns at primelending.com. And also go check out his website. Get all of his reviews at www.closewithkc.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast. As always, I'm your host, Luke. Today, sitting here with all three of the amigos, we've got Perry co-hosting and then Evan's in the house with Perry in person and then... We're going to talk a little bit of off-season prep and what we've been doing, what are some of our strategies are. What's going on, fellas? Not much, man. Sitting here with my uh, dumbass brother. He's been in a, a fine mood tonight, so this ought to be an interesting show. Yeah, you know, just got to keep Luke and Perry on their toes, make sure they don't get too complacent with this uh, co-host host thing. Yeah, Evan thinks he's uh, he's a co-host. He's kind of the third co-host, I guess. How, it's how he's always been growing up little baby of the bunch i don't have the intellect for that i'll leave that to youtube with the college degrees <laughs> my degree doesn't mean a whole lot i barely graduated um but yeah so let's we can go ahead and roll straight into things so let's kind of talk about uh we're going to use what we do on our farm uh the the, the farm that if you guys are, are just tuning in we have a family farm back in southwestern virginia it's somewhere right around 400 acres give or take a, a few and We've grown up hunting there and it's only been within the last probably, I don't know, two or three years that we've really focused on doing a lot of off-season management to where we've we've done more than just, you know, bush hog and putting out trail cams. And we've really started putting out mineral, focused on doing uh, some food plots and doing a lot more off-season work. And we've got kind of big plans going forward. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Perry, you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. As you alluded to, it's definitely something that's been a work in progress. We've all had grandiose visions over the years. And the farm property itself has been one of those deals with being a family property where there's kind of been various levels of input from from different family members over the years. Um, there's been times where we've kind of taken it more seriously and there's been other times where it's kind of fallen on the backside. So... <clears throat> This year, or well, as you said, the past couple of years, we've uh, we've been trying to make it a goal to be a little bit more um, intentional with what we're doing out there, how we approach the off-season prep in terms of um, focusing on food sources, focusing on uh, bedding areas and, and which areas we stay out of. And so now um, we're getting to a place where we're starting to kind of develop an overall strategy and now it's, the difficult part is obviously with all three of us being in different locations and it's rare, you know, maybe what a couple, two, three times a year that we're all actually up there at the same time outside of hunting season. It can be difficult to get some of those tasks checked off the list, but 
what we're going to try to do this episode is just tell you guys a little bit about what we've been doing the past, um, you know, the past really what six months since hunting season's closed, what our plans are for the rest of the off season, and then some of the some of the stuff going down the line. So that's kind of the plan. Yeah, I mean it's hard for me because obviously I'm I'm the furthest away. You guys are just a couple hours from the farm. I'm all the way on the other side of the country in Colorado. Uh, but what we really try to do is I learned some good lessons down in Georgia um, with placing minerals because down at Benning, there's no like Georgia you can bait, but then on Fort Benning itself you can't. But you can put mineral as long as it's integrated into the ground. And so we started implementing some of those same strategies that I learned from some of the old timers that hunted Fort Benning. And we took this, this mineral recipe and we, this year is the first season we've put it out and we've had some pretty, pretty awesome results. It's been getting hammered. I know Perry, you just put out a bunch of new uh, sites and added to it. You want to talk a little bit about that mineral? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things to be clear to our listeners. There was a time where our, uh, my name is father when, when he was out there and, and previously we had used some of the other kind of name brand minerals that were more of the, the pre-formulated stuff and, and that stuff, you know, it absolutely works. But what, what we realized with, and with your realization from, from your experience down there in Georgia was you don't have to necessarily go that, that name brand route. There's, there's options out there to kind of do a DIY mineral recipe. And so that was what, um, what we did. And we went this off season, we bought a bunch of stuff in bulk, which I would highly recommend to anyone out there is buy it in bulk. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that recipe, but what we've, what we basically decided to do is kind of do three different mineral, um, uh, placements. One kind of immediately, not immediately following hunt season, but, but early, um, early spring, late winter, another one kind of just recently, uh, late spring. And then we'll do another one kind of towards the fall, kind of have three different, different placements and then have it all out by the, uh, by the end of, uh, the end of the summer leading up to bow season to the open of opener of archery season. Yeah. And something to just kind of throw in there is make sure you guys look at your uh, state laws on placing mineral. Some States you can run it year round. Some States you can't like in Virginia, you've got to have your mineral site pulled in. I think it's a, a month prior to the season. We actually need to double check on that. And if you put it directly into the ground in Virginia, you have to dig so much around that mineral site, make sure all that minerals removed any kind, any sort of residual mineral that's holding in the soil. So, uh, cause you can't hunt over any sort of bait in the state of Virginia. So make sure you guys are checking up on your local game laws and staying on top of that. Cause it's, it's very easy to get tripped up and kind of not realize what's going on. Yeah. And on that Luke. So also when you guys are considering what minerals you're going to go with as Perry kind of touched on earlier for a while we used some of the uh pre-mixed stuff some of the big name brands like the what is it Perry the Quality Whitetail QDMA the Whitetail White, Institute Whitetail, Whitetail Institute. Institute stuff yeah all that um that's what we were using and it's good stuff it's not a knock on that but what we realized is that you can get the same quality because the ingredients are the same by buying in bulk from just your local feed store, your local Southern States, whatever you have in your area and you're saving yourself money and um, you're getting the same quality. Sometimes you're you're getting even better quality because you can focus on some of the actual mineral versus a lot of the stuff you buy store-bought. Like when you're buying a brick, it's mostly just salt. It's like something insane. Like 98% of what you're buying when you're buying the blocks is just salt. Yeah, and so when you're buying your own mineral, you can really add in some more of that those trace min- minerals. 
Yeah. And a lot of the, a lot of the pre-mix stuff, you know, it does have more than just the salt, but the, a lot of it is, you're, you're right. You're 100% right. It's salt a, because it's one of the cheapest ingredients. Um, and B it's easy to manufacture. So again, it, it's, it's just all what you're looking at doing on your property. And we, we decided the three of us were not necessarily in charge of the, the property that we, but we, we kind of manage it, so to speak, when it comes to the the deer hunting and the, the whitetail, the game management, if you will. Um, another thing on that is your placement of minerals. So something that we did the research on is where to put these minerals on our farm. And again, we did it specific to our piece of property. So you need to look at your piece of property. So for example, our piece of property is a pretty good mixture of hardwood, um, of evergreens. It's got pasture land. It's got multiple water sources. It's a pretty good mixture of all that. And you want to kind of have your minerals in diverse areas, but also one of the big common themes with that and where you're putting your mineral sites is within a range of a water source. So basically the animals are going to come in, get the minerals. It's going to make them thirsty because most of them are salt-based and they're going to go get want water after that. Um, Luke, I think you know a little bit more about the site management because you were, you were kind of taking the lead on that one for us. Yeah, exactly what you're talking about. So I was trying to look at areas, uh, you know, we, we've really been scouting of late. Actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. So like what Evan was saying, we have a good mix of uh, conifers and hardwoods across the property and it would be considered probably what's considered hill country. So we've got a lot of ridge lines. Um, we've got some bottom areas. We've got two creeks, one that's a major creek, a tributary to the New River that runs through our property, and then an, another smaller spur creek that runs into that. And so we've got a lot of bottom land and pretty much around the creeks is all pasture. And we've got some pasture across the ridges. And then we've got uh, a good mix of, of pines and then, and then hardwoods. And so what we've looked at and what Perry and I did was kind of analyze where the bedding was in conjunction to where those water sources were and try to place them in areas kind of like triangulate the position. So like they're going to move on travel routes, they're going to stop, they're going to hit the minerals and they're going to go to those water sources. And I think that's been pretty much what our strategy has been throughout. I know Perry, you just added some new ones. Did you continue with that strategy or did you kind of deviate a little bit with the, with different thoughts? No, I absolutely continue with that strategy. And I think that's, for most people, it's going to be the, the right approach to take um, with, again, with the size of this property, there's multiple areas out there that, that we felt we could expand. I think our first, our first time out, we had four, maybe four or five mineral sites. And I wanted to get a couple more out there. Um, it's one of those deals where it honestly does not take that much uh, mineral per per individual site. I think, uh, the recommendation you got Luke was about 20 pounds per hole. And, um, that would make with the recipe that we used, which was 200 total pounds of mineral that would make around 12 holes. So having, having an initial setup of four or five, we felt like we could definitely spread it out a little bit more, cover a little bit more acreage of the property and expand into a little bit tighter or a little bit closer to some of those bedding areas. Because as you alluded to, that's what you're really trying to get. You're trying to get them on that corridor from their bedding to their feeding um, habit. And then something that's proximate to water 
kind of as they're coming back because that's they're going to crave that after they've hit those mineral sites. And just to make it really basic for, I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence, but what he means by holes, he means physical holes in the ground, your actual mineral sites. So that 12 holes he's talking about is 12 mineral sites, dug out holes by hand with your foot, with a shovel, whatever, because typically where you put the minerals is going to be in some sort of little trench or hole. Yeah. And on that note, so that kind of goes back to what I was saying about knowing your game laws, because honestly, at some point we may shift off. We didn't this year because we're kind of just all of us were uh, tight on time. But I have a feeling after we start digging out mineral sites, we might want to put that in troughs going forward. Um, So know what you guys can and can't do in Georgia. You can leave the the mineral out and it doesn't matter. And it is crazy what you'll see. Those deer will like you'll put it down and they will dig a hole from where that salt and all that stuff has seeped into the ground. They will just eat that out and just make a massive, massive hole. So it's pretty cool to see. But we're we're gonna have to dig. We're gonna have to do a lot of digging prior to the season this or this year. Yeah, I mean it's it is truly amazing to see and and not talking about minerals, but I'm sure everyone see has seen like buck jam and those uh, deer attractants in Walmart and whatever. And like we have put those physically owned stumps, like rotten stumps, and the deer will literally eat the stump and like paw it out of the ground. So if you do have a state where you're going to have to remove the bait source, um, then that's something to consider where you place that. I also want to say, and this is coming from doing my own research on the subject and listening to other podcasts, other experts in the field. If you have a smaller track, it doesn't matter what track you're hunting on, whether it's a lease, whether you own it yourself, um, or honestly, whether it's on public land and you're putting minerals out in an area that you specifically hunt, don't get deterred. Like if you're like, okay, there's not water, there's not, there's not a primary mineral, but I got a lot of deer traffic. Don't let that deter you from putting minerals out because you can still get results putting minerals out. What we are telling you is ideal situations so if you have your hunting lease is 23 acres and there's not a water source on your hunting lease that doesn't mean don't put minerals out there what we are saying is these are the prime conditions these are the the tier one the a type scenarios if you will for these mineral locations don't let that deter you from putting minerals out we probably should have started with this but uh perry why don't you talk a little bit uh you're the trained biologist here uh, what are the benefits of having minerals, you know, on your, on your land? And, and what does that, you know, do for the deer one with their antler growth and then just overall health and, uh, being? So there's a, there's a couple of different ways to explore that. And it's a great point and definitely something that needs to be addressed. The, one of the first things I would say is, and we'll get into the, the specific nutrition stuff here in a second, but one of the first things this time of year is when you, if you have a site that you're you're it's proximate to an area that you suspect has bedding in it whether it's it's doe bedding or or more specifically or ideally probably hopefully buck bedding then putting out a mineral site getting a trail camera on it this time of year in a in a it will help you establish a known travel corridor for a potential target buck that's ideally that's you know that's one of the goals is trying to figure out this time of year and in your preseason scouting where these travel corridors are that these bucks are taking to get from that, that, um, that feeding to when they're still in that kind of feeding to bedding, uh, habit. So that's the first thing beyond that, as far as the actual nutritional aspect, when, um, 
when a when a buck finishes up with the rut, obviously everyone knows the rut is extremely taxing on the the uh, physiological demands of a, of a whitetail. And so once when they're coming out of that post rut season in early uh, early to mid spring, late winter, that kind of time frame, there's a ton of nutritional demands on their body. Typically, for most of the for most of the lower 48, um, that's when food you know native food sources kind of at at a peak low. Um, and so that's when doing some supplemental mineral, um, inputs, having some supplemental mineral inputs for those whitetail can really lead to prolonged health as they transition into the spring and the antler development time. Also a big thing that doesn't often get considered and something that I wasn't even really aware of until more recently is that. A lot of times the long-term health, the long-term viability and and antler potential of a buck can be almost directly tied back to its nutritional, um, to its nutritional demands being met as a young deer. And if, if it's, if it's, if it's mother, when, when that deer is lactating, is getting the nutritional needs that she that she requires via mineral supplements, via native vegetation, native food sources, et cetera. And that can go a long way towards promoting antler growth. So it's one of those, and that's why it's one of those things that in the spring and the summer, it's still important or it can be if you don't have that native browse available to do supplemental minerals. Well, it makes a lot of sense. It goes back to, you know, when we've talked about podcast episodes, we're talking about our personal health, proper supplementation, supplementation on top of a good workout is key. Like, yeah, you can go out there and you can train your ass off, but if you eat like shit, depending on who it is, obviously genetics have a little bit of a role in there. But at the end of the day, like with supplementation, you can get better results. So it's the same for whitetail and across both genders, whether it's does that are lactating and feeding their young or it's bucks and you're looking to get, to get good antler growth. So I was uh, just reading a study not too long ago about genetics. And I, based on what I was reading, granted, you know, studies are what they are. So take everything with a grain of salt. But genetics are pretty overblown, I think, within the whitetail world. Uh, we always talk about genetics. It's something we always talk about. I know I, I'm as guilty as anybody. But what the study was saying was uh, they, they did a transplant. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember exactly uh, the states and all the, all the details. But they, they took it was one of the the primo states like either Kansas or Iowa, Illinois, like, you know, those top tier States. And they took deer from elsewhere and they took deer from um, those primo States and then put them into another state that didn't have like the best, you know, it wasn't really known for the the world-class whitetails. And it really comes down to that nutrition. So the feed and then the, the, the mineral supplementation that are getting through, through their nutrition. And they, they saw basically it, was almost entirely that versus the genetics for the the growth. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, I don't remember the details of where or when I read that because I just like read random shit and then don't, don't write it down. I probably should since I host a podcast. I was going to say you absolutely should because you sent that link to, I don't remember if it was in the HLE team chat or if it was to just the group chat between me, you and Perry, but you sent that link to us and I'll, it might be something we could dig back through. It'd be worth posting in the show notes, but it's definitely good information because I didn't know. 
I mean, I didn't know that. And I was, I was kind of surprised by it because we've always heard like, okay, you have coal bugs, right? Like get, get these weak genetics out of the, out of the gene pool essentially. But based off that research that you're talking about, I'm not going to say it eliminates that, but it definitely kind of I makes mean, you rethink it. Yeah. It, it, I don't want to say it completely goes against it, but I, I do think there's some value in, in having coal bucks or coal, coal animals, but it, it's, it's not a end all be all black and white. Well, there've been multiple studies where they've actually done kind of a genealogical tracking of, of, um, you know, through, through a line of descendancy for, uh, for different bucks and then taking note of their, their different classes they reach as they reach maturity. And there've been plenty of instances where, what you know some might consider kind of a scrub buck has given birth to something that would be considered a trophy buck and vice versa where a trophy buck a trophy buck excuse me has an offspring that you might look at at three and a half four and a half even five and a half years old and go wow there's no way this thing came from good genetics and to your point luke the the bottom line is that genetics obviously they play some role but the bigger role is really more the uh, the environment and the nutritional needs that that buck is getting not only you know immediately prior to the rut and during the rut and after the rut but it's really year round it's and it's starting from birth it's it's honestly starting from in vitro from the time that buck is um is uh is is in vitro is nursing it's from its mother and then all the way through its entire life cycle if it has its nutritional needs met then that buck is much more likely to to become trophy caliber. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, we came from the same parents and look at you versus me. You, you're the scrub buck and I'd be the trophy. So, I mean, that completely checks. Yeah, I mean, we have like half the same genetics. Or look at me and James. Like, goddamn. Get the, <laughs> the, the, old, the old bull here and you got the, the young calf that's just sitting there not developing. You know what I'm saying? One of you's built like a fire hydrant. The other one's built like James Dean. <laughs> Oh man, I don't even remember what we were just talking about because I'm just thinking about making fun of James, old James. Genetics and how Perry and James got the short end of the stick when it comes to the the genetics <laughs> in our, our family tree. Well, as the shortest guy in the family, I think I got the short end of the stick, but at least I well, can lose some weight. At least you got brains too. You know, I just got I just got the physique. You got the look at the looks in the eyes, bro. And those fucking baby blues. Yeah, speaking of, I just got told well, you know what? We'll save that for another podcast. No, I want to hear it now. Let's hear it. All right. So I literally got told, someone asked me the other day, like, hey, man, are you straight? And I was like, yes. And they were like, you got really pretty eyes for a straight guy. And I don't know what being straight <laughs> has to do with whether my eyes are pretty or not. I mean, it's a compliment, and I'm going to take it as such. And it's Pride Month. So, you know, respect. I just, I'm all about it. You heard it here first, boys. He's all about it. Get it, get get those DMs. He's about about it. His name is Evan Eisner. Evan dot D dot Eisner on Instagram. He's got baby blues, lots of tattoos, very fit, tall, dark, handsome. Hit him up. I was talking. I was talking to you, Anthony. I see you flexing them abs on the Instagram. Dude, <laughs> Anthony's a pro strong man and has abs like a fucking cheese grater. Let's just talk about that for a second. Strong as he, hell. The Normally those fronts- boys got them big old bellies like I do. Like I, I'm. Built like a strong man. I'm just not very strong compared to those fuckers. The dude is front squatting more than my back squat PR. It's bullshit. I'm, yeah, and he's doing it for reps. <laughs> yeah, it's bullshit. 
Anyway, whitetail genetics. <laughs> that is one of the little tangents that we go off on in this podcast. But yeah, uh, so genetics. They're not as important as you think. So what the what really triggered this entire thing of research that I went down was uh fuck, was it last season or two seasons ago? I don't know. It all blurs together. Uh too much booze, but our buddy John shot a so we've got we got some parameters, right? When you're hunting out at the at the place on what you can and can't do, and it's it's loose, like we're not draconian about it. Mistakes happen, but for the most part, it's it's a shoot an eight pointer. It's wider than the ears. We're really trying to start moving towards older age class deer and not just antlers size. But it's just for new hunters or new guys to the farm, which is easier to have the eight points wider than the ears. Now what we're talking about is literally like, or is actually like, you know, four, four and a half years old and older, but it's hard to age deer. It just is even for folks that know what they're doing. And so one of our buddies, old John Ritter himself or or Ron Jitter, whichever alias he's going by, he, uh, he smacked a a six pointer probably, what do you think, Perry? Three and a half? Yeah, it might have been three and a half. I mean, there's there's a chance that deer was two and a half years old. He obviously wasn't was not a mature deer. Yeah, and so John felt really terrible. Uh, in in his penance, he drug that deer about a mile to the cabin from uh, where he shot it, which was absolute insane to me. I was like, bro, we've got four wheelers and trucks. You should have just called us. We'd have, but he he drugged that some bitch whole and then gutted it down to the creek. And so, um, now fuck that, make him sweat. but we had a conversation and we decided like, Hey, like, no, that makes a lot of sense. Like let's, let's call these bucks that don't have brow tines. So, you know, it would have been an eight pointer, but he didn't have brow tines. And we read like a study that was like, Oh, you got to kill these bucks. Well, this, you know, that, that was kind of for, yeah, it was two seasons ago. So that, for that whole season, we had this, this rule of, Hey, kill any buck that didn't have brow tines. Well, I think we killed three or four of them that prompted a lot more research by me and Perry. And we found a lot of the same articles and we were looking at it. And there was another study that was done. uh, It was done in Texas and it was a pretty large ranch. And Perry can probably talk a little bit more intelligently to me because I'm a, I'm a dumb gorilla, but basically it it disproved that it was, it was showing that like at a certain point, just because a a deer doesn't have brow tines at one point, one year doesn't mean it won't develop them later. And then the same with the size of the spread in the overall mass of the antlers and, and all that. So Perry, you want to touch on that? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the comprehensive results of the study, but, it, but the, the gist of it was basically there can be these massive jumps from year to year in antler growth and development for a specific buck. So for instance, if that buck that John killed was two and a half years old or even three and a half years old, there's nothing to say that if it had been, if it had the proper uh, nutrition and, um, you know, everything it needed in its, from its, from its food source that it couldn't have at three and a half or four and a half or five and a half years, just absolutely exploded into something that was, that, you know, looked much different than that, you know, browless six pointer that he shot. Also, as I was saying earlier, the other thing is, even if that buck, if that buck did get to four and a half, five and a half years, even if it did never explode and become that top tier kind of trophy, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have potential to pass on the genetics that could lead to a top tier trophy down the road. If that buck was also had access to everything it needed from a nutritional standpoint. So the results of the study were fairly conclusive and that again, 
nutrition is far superior to genetics when it comes to actually predicting future antler growth and development. And which was kind of circling back to what we decided to do was we really, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of food on our family farm. Um, but what we really wanted to do was try to make sure we were supplementing such that we felt confident that there were no gaps in nutrition along the year that the deer were actually getting what they need. And that's why we started to really put, take our, our uh, mineral supplementation seriously. Yeah. that's like the perfect kind of segue from the minerals into what we've been doing with food. Cause like what primarily what you see on our property is a, we've got a lot of white oaks, uh, a shitload of red oaks, which deer prefer the white oaks. I'll let Perry tell why, cause I don't know. I just know they do. Um, and so we've got a lot of acorns. And so the acorns are, are obviously heavy mass. It depends year to year, but the past couple of years, it seems like we've had a really heavy mass crop, uh, which has kept the, the deer in the timber. And so what we've tried to do is because of, you know, them really holding in the timber and not coming out to the pastures to graze like they historically kind of have is focus on uh, adding in some food plots. And it's been slow and we've been doing kind of, I would consider them micro plots, not what you see on these massive, because we still, we have cattle, uh, cattle lease on the farm and there's no internal fencing, which is frustrating to, to us, but it just kind of is what it is, is the situation. Um, and so the cattle lease, if we put, you know, obviously we put food plots out to where the cattle can access it, they're just going to hammer it and it's, it's going to be completely moot as far as the deer are concerned. So we try to put them in uh, micro plots and tucked up areas away from the uh, main pastures where the cattle aren't going to get up in there. And we've cleared out certain areas to add in those plots. Some of them are just clover. Some of them are just areas that we've bush hogged and just kind of keep mowed down. And some of them are like areas that we've added a, a lot of different uh, C2 with like some diversity within the food plots. Yeah. And on that, so Luke kind of alluded to it, but again, you know, we're talking about very specifically our family farm. So you listeners that don't have a family farm, maybe you have a hunting lease, maybe you have, maybe you do have private land, maybe it's 20 acres, maybe it's hundred acres, maybe it's a thousand acres. There's a lot you can do. And one of the big takeaways from the last few minutes of this conversation that we've had is that nutrition is going to be far superior than genetics. Also, what you can do with some of these little micro food plots Luke's talking about, especially if you're hunting those smaller tracks, is you can pull deer in to your property off of the neighbor's property. And we all know that's fair game. I mean, everyone in the hunting world knows, like, if you if you have the best food source, you have the best water, you have the best bedding, you're going to have the best whitetail habitat. And if you can create that, and you can do that by, and we're not talking about, you know, what you see on real tree outdoors or whatever, where with these extremely extravagant food plots, you can do very cheap micro food plots that are going to drastically improve the whitetail habitat on your pieces of property. If you have a piece of property that's only woods, um, whether it's hardwood or coniferous evergreens, whatever it is, you can add in, you can add in some different uh, food plot variations open up a game trail and just plant pruning up limbs and getting some sunlight in on your game trails and then planting a winter clover adds to that nutritional value. We've done a lot of this over the years at our family farm with just little things that are cheap 
and clover's not expensive and it's really easy to get a uh, frost seed. And I think Perry and Luke touched on this on a previous podcast a little bit about how to frost seed uh, with clover. And maybe that's something y'all want to touch on again. However, again, the, the, the big takeaway is nutrition is one of the key factors in your whitetail development and your whitetail habitat. And it starts in the off season. So we need to back up a little bit. We talked about minerals and all this stuff, but minerals, we never gave the, uh, the mineral recipe. Do you have that Perry? Yeah, I do. Bear with me one second here. If not, I can try to find it. You guys can just sit here awkwardly as we look for this. Cause we're really bad at podcast hosting. While he's looking at it again, just keep in mind, like we, we literally drove to the local hardware store feed store and got this stuff. So I, I feel like this mineral recipe is going to be something that everyone that listens to this podcast is going to have access to. It's not like you have to go to a specialized store. I got it. All right. So um, exactly, exactly what he said. I got this from one of the old timers that's been hunting Fort Benning for years. He's a retired first sergeant. Like he's just an old army guy that retired outside of Fort Benning, hunts a shitload, kills big bucks every year. So that's why I was intrigued when he just gave his recipe out. So it's, the, it's a mineral mix of 50 pounds of dicalcium phosphate, 100 pounds of red trace mineral, and 50 pounds of salt. So I'm going to say that again. 50 pounds of dicalcium phosphate, 100 pounds of red trace mineral, and 50 pounds of salt. You can get that from any uh, Royal King, Big R, Tractor Supply, Southern States, Basically, anywhere you get mineral feed for cattle, livestock, horses, whatever, you can get that in bulk. And it is significantly cheaper to buy it that way than it is to buy the bricks or the pre-mixed stuff from Whitetail Institute or one of the other ones. And what I will say is we put that first round out back in, what was it, late January, maybe sometime February? Yeah, it was in the early fall. Or sorry, early early winter. So I think we... Um, we did that and I went back out there a few weeks ago and did another round and all of those initial sites that we had put out had actually absolutely been, been, uh, pawed to death, dug up, almost all of the mineral was gone. And those were, we, in his recommendation, he said 20 pounds per site. That should, that should, that would have been enough to make 12 sites. We did not do 12. It was like half that, or maybe even a little bit less. So we had a, a bunch of minerals concentrated in a few areas and they still hit it hard. And they got almost all of it up, which was one reason I wanted to add a couple more sites and just cover, get a little bit more of the uh, the property covered. So um, I'm going to go back out there next week and hang some some summer trail cams. And we're going to start getting some pictures of some of these mineral sites. And um, I, I'm expecting the exact same thing. I'm expecting these sites to be torn up. I think this recipe is, is great. And I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it for a few years, kind of get into a rhythm with these deer fine tuning the location, you know, as needed and, and seeing what kind of uh, results it brings. Do either one of y'all remember what that cost for that 200 pounds of mineral? Cause I, I don't offhand, but I remember it was, we split it three ways and it was super cheap. I do remember it was $220 for all of it. And we split it three ways. So, yeah, I mean, that's when you look at what we got versus what you would get, if you went to one of the other ones, just buying it, that kind of I won't say wholesale, but it's kind of wholesale and just buying it in that bulk. It's awesome. If you would have, if you would have bought that from the whitetail Institute, it would have been probably pushing a grand that, that many pounds. Cause we, I mean, one bag of minerals 
you can buy the Whitetail Institute stuff at, uh, I was just looking at it. Um, fuck, where was I? I want to say it was uh, Southern States in Charlottesville, Virginia. Anyway, like one bag of it was, which the one bag was a pound. It was one pound and it was $20. So, I mean, that math right there, you you can really save a lot of money if you take this method that we're talking about. Yeah, and and that so Luke said 100 pounds of the uh, the trace, 50 pounds of the dicalcium phosphate, and 50 pounds of the salt. We bought enough to do three rounds again: one kind of late winter, one early spring, uh, and kind of leading into summer, and then another one kind of um, late summer slash fall leading up to the archery. We bought three rounds, so that's 600 total pounds of mineral for 220 bucks. I mean, that's it, you know. That's doable for for most people out there. Yeah, and and how much you put the last batch out, Perry? How much do we have left? We've put out what three batches now. We've we've put out two batches. So we still have total. We still have two hundred pounds of mineral. One, uh, yeah, two hundred so, pounds. So break of mineral that math out. down for the listeners so they can understand. So we started with six hundred pounds, two batches. We have two hundred pounds left. So, so that would come to, it comes to less. If it was two hundred twenty dollars total, I mean, you're it's you know. 70 bucks yeah per round for 200 pounds of total mineral you can spread that 200 pounds out if you do it 20 pounds per mineral site that gives you 12 sites i mean it's 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 the way to do it we're not we know we're not trying to toss shade on these other companies out here but no of course not it's one of those things it's like you know you don't have to be you know you don't have to be a big bunny poser to uh to take some of this stuff seriously and actually even though we are even though we are right if y'all got big money i need you to send some my way yeah no shit i keep waiting for the uh the big money to roll in because uh i think it's caleb i think caleb secretly got the big money he keeps buying new pit viper sunglasses that son of a bitch damn he's it caleb got, he's got a lot of money I mean, I mean garrett this motherfucker at a strongman competition Wearing like a George Strait resist all fucking cowboy hat with gator teeth on the band, pulling fucking money out of a Hungarian or money, Jesus, pulling weight out of a out of a Hungarian deadlift. Like that's a motherfucker who's got some money, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm tracking, dude. You know what that reminds me of is my buddy Cody who's got the <laughs> gator skin seat covers. Random insert there, but <laughs> I'll never forget this is another random insert, but <laughs> we're floating the river. <laughs> some bitch. <laughs> Gets I forgot the, about that. Gets in the tube. We're, we're about to do like a six-hour float. That some bitch gets in the tube with his cowboy boots on. These are like brand spanking new, brand new, brand, brand new. new. I was like, Cody, you gonna take your boots off? He's like, No, nah, they're gator skin. I was like, Exactly, man. Those are oh, they were shark boots. skin, shark skin. Oh, that's right. It was shark skin, shark skin boots. These things were not cheap. And he was like, Well, the shark took him in the water. I reckon I can. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Cla- shit! Classic Texan. Oh yeah. Anyways, but going back, so big again. Big takeaway: nutrition is key, and we threw the recipe out there. But I do think there's a lot of merit in talking about what we were kind of uh, transitioning to, which is the micro food plots. Um, and Perry, you can articulate the sciencey shit behind it a lot more than I can. But basically what I was going to, I wanted to jump in before we got off on the Cody tangent was, uh, so the same thing goes, what we, we've kind of discovered with the minerals is just 
hey, let's just buy some wholesale shit is the same. And I think, Evan, you talked about it a little bit. It's just, just buy clover seed. Like, yeah, having the mixes is good. And, and we, we use the mixes from Whitetail Institute. Like, they make a great product, like, no doubt. However, if you, if you have a, a big area that you don't necessarily want to cultivate as a true food plot, you can put down some lime. And we'll let Perry talk about the details of all this shit because he's the science nerd. But, you know, you get the pH right, do all that sciencey shit. And then put down your clover. Let your clover seed come out. It's a perennial, which means it's going to come back year after year. And you can buy bulk clover seed for dirt cheap. Absolutely. And uh, again, know what piece of ground you're hunting. If you're hunting primary pasture land or fields, then you might have a good food source and you need to add some other things to it. You might need to add some bedding. You might need to add some covers, some things like that. If you ha- are hunting primarily hardwoods, but hardwoods that aren't acorn producing, i.e. white oak producing, uh, because deer like white oak more than red oak, then maybe add a food source to the hardwoods. If you have primarily a pine stand, like in central North Carolina or a lot of the southern states, then add some of that supplemental nutritional stuff like we were talking about with the clover, the minerals, some of those micro food plots. And I think Perry's going to discuss, as Luke said, the nerdy shit fucking nerd <laughs> that's why y'all keep me around I, I reckon that's why i brought you on i was like if, if me and evan couldn't co-host because or couldn't be host and co-host because it'd be just the same dude talking dumb gorilla shit like it wouldn't make any sense <laughs> we need to have a smart guy to balance turn, that shit out it would just turn into caveman grunts and we'd end up in a fight somehow through video chat it reminds me of my childhood you say, that like <laughs> you say that like they're not fond memories. <laughs> so we're all so close. They're, they're mostly fond. I'll give you that. There were some, there were some bad days. <laughs> For sure. They're funny now, though. Most of them involve Luke pouting, though. For sure on that. Out of the, the three of us, there's one guy that cr- cried to mommy the most, and it wasn't me or Perry. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, it was James. Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck James, old Jim Nate. Oh, man. I'm going to try to get this thing back on the rails here. So, yeah, both of what y'all have said is is, uh, is spot on. We uh, we we did some analysis of the property. And I, I will say, dude, don't get me wrong. If we had the time and if we lived up there near our family farm, if we had the equipment and the machinery, I would be all about doing more intensive food plots and, you know, kind of doing more of the tried and true uh, quote unquote textbook method with some of this stuff. But the reality is, as we said, we all three live in different places. Time is a, is a valuable resource for us. For us. We're almost never all up there at the same time. And so we kind of had to like put our heads together and say, we're going to have to come up with a little bit of a, of a different strategy here if we want to actually implement some of the stuff that we're talking about. So what we decided to do was just kind of go, instead of, you know, doing some of these pre, pre-mixed seed blends um, specifically for, you know, quote unquote, specifically formulated for whitetail. What we decided we were going to do is just do more of a, a wholesale seed method and, and use, you know, use the frost seeding. We've talked about a little bit about that. And so I, that's what I did a little bit this, this spring. Hit the wave tops on the frost seeding, Perry, for listeners that might not have heard that episode. So basically what it is, is during the winter, when you're having a freeze thaw cycle, 
that's occurring in the top, you know, few inches of your soil layer. Basically, it's getting down below freezing at night. That soil is contracting, and then it's getting up, up above freezing during the day. The soil is thawing out, and it's expanding. What that does is that opens up the pores in the soil. If you broadcast seed, we're not talking about tilling. We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're literally just talking about broadcasting seed on the surface. What happens is during that freeze-thaw cycle, and it just takes a couple of days. You know, It doesn't have to be weeks on end of this. You just have a few days where it's below freezing at night, above freezing at day. You broadcast your seed, and that seed will work its way down into the soil. It will remain dormant until the growing season starts. And then come springtime, come April, May, you know, whatever, depending on where you are, um, that seed will start to germinate and, and, you know, and start the beginnings of a little food plot. Now, I will say, all that being said, typically you're not going to have the, the germination success as you will if you did a, 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 a till, um, you know, really prep the soil and do all that. But you can still get decent germination success and um, it, it's a good, very cost efficient way to do some some little food plots. And that's basically what we did this uh, this off season, primarily with clover. There's other species you can do it with. Um, the size of the seed is something that's really important there, but uh, we don't need to get into all that. I would say for most guys, clover is a great, at least starting point. Do your own research, depending on where you live, uh, what your soil types are, what your climatic conditions are, uh, what potential seed options and, and food sources might be viable for you. But we primarily went with clover. Again, these little micro plots that kind of Evan was alluding to, just the way our property is uh, situated uh, due to due to past uses, that's that's what made the most sense for us. And it, it so far seems to be working pretty well. We did go with a few blends in a, a few certain areas. And so what I mentioned to or mentioned earlier was we've got the cattle on the property with no internal fencing. So we, we do have to be very selective where we put the blends. And that's why we primarily go with the clover is because the, the cattle can hit it and it's okay. It's very resilient. It's perennial. It's going to come back. It's going to continue. In the areas where we can kind of segregate from the cattle, where we know they're not going to go that far into the timber, and we've cleared out little areas, um, little pockets of spots to put these plots. We have gone with the uh, Whitetail Institute. We have zero relation with them, by the way, so we're not like shouting them out for money or nothing. It's just who we use. Uh, I'll be frank about that. And so... Uh, a couple of their different blends. We've done their no-till blend, which works pretty well. And then what was the what, – do you remember offhand, Perry, what the other blend was that we used? Uh, I don't. I want to say it's something related to um, – It was like there's – I think they have a small plot blend. I think that's what it was. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. Top yeah, of my head. We, we should better prepare for this, but as always, we're, we're not good at podcasting. We just talk. So – yeah, we, we utilize their no-till blend and then whatever their small plot blend is. I, I don't remember the name of it offhand. Uh, I'll do. I'll, I'll look real quick and try to figure out what the name of that, that shit is. But anyways, what, what, what I'm trying to get with that is depending on what your situation is, right? Clover is great, but it's it's not ideal year round because clover, you know, dies out as, as the uh, temperatures cool. And so what we've done with those blends is have that different secessional stuff of some of the brassicas and then it rolls through and you have some of that late season um, species of <laughs> the late season stuff that will sit there and uh, continue to grow even as it cools off. And that's really good. Instead of those, those very late season plots, because those late season plots can be money when it comes to, you know, trying to cash in on those buck tags. 
Yeah, and one thing that if if you particularly if you do have access to some of the equipment or um, you're doing more of a traditional style and you're not just relying on a broadcast method with frost seeding, then having a having a variety can be huge because like you said, Luke, different different uh, different species will peak and then decline at different times of the year. They'll have different nutritional contents at different times of the year. Sometimes the nutritional content may be super high in the spring, kind of wane during the fall and then pick back up or excuse me, decline in the summer and then pick back up in the fall as temperatures get cooler, et cetera. So having a, a mix of your, of your legumes, your cereal rise, your grasses, uh, your brassicas, all that stuff can be ideally, um, Again, break that down for people that don't know what that stuff is. So legumes are a, these are all various uh, families of of vegetation. Legumes are your clovers, your peas. Um, They fix nitrogen in the soil, which is something that is basically adding fertilizer to the soil. Uh, Your grass is pretty straightforward. Your cereal rise, wheat, um, barley, uh, that type of thing. And then your brassicas, um, kale, rape, uh, turnips, all that type of stuff. Those are all your different brassicas. Those are typically more late season uh, preferred. Um, basically, having having a diversity if you can, if you can, if you have the uh, the tools at hand to implement that is is obviously always better than than a monoculture. Uh, that's something that we're hopefully going to work towards out here. Um, again resources are somewhat limited with what we have in play now. So that's why we've been kind of focusing at least in the short term on the broadcast frost seeding method for some of our micro plots. Yeah. I just looked at, I, I found the blend. It's the bow stand blend. That's what we were utilizing. Um, totally forgot the name, but it's, it's for smaller plots it's for this bow stands. And that's what we utilize uh, in several of those little micro plots we were talking about is, is that blend. And it's, it's done pretty well. The first time, um, we didn't have great results, but I think that was more user error. What our strategy was, is <clears throat> we we're looking for open areas. This is all pine, uh, in these areas we've set these food plots. in. so historically this is all planted plant, planted pine, excuse me. And we went in and we cleared out some of these areas with, uh, just the, the three of us basically in, in clearing everything out. And then we went in and we tried the first, the first year we did a little bit of burning and then we just sowed the seed we got kind of mediocre results the second season we went in again and really focused on mowing, clearing, raking, getting all the old pine needles and just really getting that bare soil uh, available. And then we planted the, the bow stand seed and we had pretty good results and we had some pretty big bucks. That one, that one buck sat there for what, like six hours one day. It was pretty wild on camera. It was the biggest buck we've seen on the property in a couple of years, at least. Yeah, it was. And he was, he was out there in that one little plot that we've been calling the pine plot for several hours, right in the middle of the day, right leading up to the ruts. I think it was like early, early November. Um, so it definitely had, it definitely had an attractive standpoint. The two things I would say for anyone that's considering kind of a method similar to what we're describing here is one make sure you're getting enough sunlight into the uh, the target area if you if your target area is only a quarter of an acre like that's fine but a lot of these areas that we're talking about are quarter half acre areas again it's not big 
it's not big acreage we're talking about. Make sure you're getting enough light into that at all times of the day. The area that we have, like Luke said, is a pine, is a uh, a planted pine plantation, uh, and so you want to kind of be strategic about it as you open it up and make sure that it's not just getting sunlight for the first couple hours of the day or the last couple hours of the day. It's actually getting at least some sunlight through through that little area, even if it's only a quarter of an acre at all times of the day. And then the second thing that I would say is if you don't have that equipment and you're doing more of a broadcast method, even either early in the spring or even, you know, this, uh, the bow stand plot that you, that we finally figured out, that's more, that's an annual mix that we did. Uh, it's a fall planting. And what you want to make sure you do is really target a forecast that calls for rain because you can even do a broadcast method on that stuff. It's obviously not going to be frost seeding in August or early September when you're seeding it. But if you're going to get a good, hard rainstorm, thunderstorm that you know is coming and you get that seed out there, that rain, as it impacts the soil, is actually going to drive the seeds down in there. And you can kind of get the same result. Basically, all you need is really is that seed to soil contact and you have the recipe for germination. And so uh, sunlight and water, at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. You get those two things and you got a pretty good chance of, of growing some some decent food plots. Yeah, and on top of that, you make sure the pH of your soil is good to go and it's a good base. And I want to piggyback off of what Perry's saying again for you listeners who are starting out or maybe you have whatever suboptimal conditions for for these little micro food plots. What we're talking about, so you can get a mental image, is a little field that has kind of, it was an old logging loading yard. But then we opened up with some good old-fashioned chainsaw work and hard labor. Thanks, John Ritter and Casey Burns. Not so much Casey because you were hungover and worthless from what I hear. I wasn't there. So was John. They were both worthless. A lot of right, quitting well, them, as uh, our grandpa used to say. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's like don't have that mental image of this food plot Perry's talking about as a lush, green, knee-high, tall, brassica, turnip food plot like you see on TV when you're watching these hunting shows. This is like something that we had Andrew mowing through a yellow jacket's nest with a push mower while we all sat around and drank <laughs> beer to get started. Like this isn't this isn't some like unattainable goal that's super expensive. And the the reason I'm talking about that is we had deer coming to this and hanging out here, which is proof that this works and it's not a luscious thick like super full food plot it's kind of sporadic it's new it's starting but it just proves a that the method works that it doesn't take a lot of effort and a lot of money to do it and also dude deer can smell this shit and they can they see it and they want it they crave it it's just like us you know when your body is deprived of nutrients you start craving certain things so i'm gonna go off a tangent on that but I just don't want there to be this false sense of like, this is some big elaborate food plot. Cause it's not, it's simple, it's small and it just works. You could say that this food plot is the hunt, lift, eat podcast of food plots. Beautiful. Exactly. Six <laughs> generation mountain trash. hundred percent. Kind of ugly to look at, but at the end of the day, it gets the job done. Yeah, like the three of us, minus Evan yeah. with those baby blues. Yeah, we've already touched on that. Don't make his head big. 
His head's been big since we were like six. But no, you're exactly right. No comment. <laughs> you're exactly right. The, the bottom line is, is it's not one of those primo, like sexy food plots you're going to see on the outdoor channel. It has weeds in it. It's not six feet tall, you know, has been excluded right up until two days before hunting season starts. But ultimately all you're trying to do is provide one, an attractant to the deer and two, a little bit of extra nutritional content that they're not getting. And it achieves both of those goals. And if you can do both of those two things, you're well on your way. That kind of brings up a good point, Luke. So when you were bringing up that deer, talking about uh, how we realized that that deer was there, talking about some trail cam strategies. I know you have a lot of, you've kind of taken the lead on uh, the trail cam strategies for our farm, Luke. You want to kind of touch base and give the listeners the strategies we've been using in the past few years? Yeah, so we didn't have trail cams for a long-ass time, um, which was really to our detriment. Um, we started doing trail cams two years ago, and it's really because I, I stopped trapping down at Fort Benning, and I just had a ton of trail cams left over, and I just brought them up, and we started running them. And you can get so much intel from trail cams. Obviously, everybody knows that. We're, we're late to the game. I would say that most of the people listening to this are far ahead of us when it comes to trail cams. Um. And so it was just a bunch of basic trail cams. I don't need to go into all the branding and all that. But what we have done is recently we're starting to migrate over to um, the tactic cam reveal, which is a very cool trail cam. They're not paying us to advertise for them or anything. As a team, we're getting uh, a discount on their trail cams. Um, We've got a relationship with them. But the reason that I was willing to do that was because I I had been a brand rep for uh, tactic cam itself as the... uh, the hunting camera and I really liked it. I like the quality. I like the crew. I like the guys. And then I had the opportunity to then join the team with one of the guys that I hunted up in Wyoming with uh, Jacob Hacker from survive the hunt podcast. If anybody wants to go check them out. Awesome guy, wealth of knowledge has helped me out immensely with hunting out West. But what's really cool is you're basically paying normal trail cam prices for the tactic cam reveal. Um, but you're getting a cellular camera, you know, with the functionality, which is, which is awesome. And so this season will be the first season that we implement that. And it only makes sense for us with the distance. It That's, that's really what it comes down to. If we were living right there, you know, 10 miles from the, from the farm. Sure. Like we could just run normal trail cams. We could do the, the normal thing once a month, just drive through and, and pick up the, the SD cards. But with the fact that we're all remote, we're, we're several hours away, you two, and then myself, I'm fuck. 23 or 24 hours away as, as the crow flies driving uh it just it really only makes sense to start switching over to cellular cameras and, and the reveal is an awesome deal and it's an awesome camera for what you get with the money yeah man and to piggyback off of what you just said we are late to the game when it comes to trail cams that being said i think we've got a pretty good strategy kind of already worked out and when i say we i mean you know, you, you touched on it, Luke. You brought some of your trail cams up from Benning when you stopped trapping hogs. Perry's bought a few. I'm the only one that hasn't bought some yet. He's a cheap money poser right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cheap as hell. I've, I've been spending, I've been spending too much money on the tractor diesel. That's you know, I contribute. I fucking contribute, Luke. <laughs> I will say this has got nothing to do with anything, but 
Evan, for four years, missed hunting season. Bless some bitches out there bush hogging. So me and Perry could kill deer over those bush bush hogged uh, plots. So I appreciate that. Thank you. you. I appreciate appreciate the shout out. That that means a lot. Yeah, just swallow your pride a little for that one, huh, Luke? No, not at all. I don't have no pride no more. (laughs) You know it's been going on. We don't need to get into that, but you know it's been going on. I've got zero pride. It's gone. (laughs) But anyway, what I was saying is I, I do think we've worked out a pretty good strategy, and I will say Perry and Luke have kind of taken taken the lead on that, but it's it's something that I can easily fall in on once I buy troll cams and something that I can easily fall in on with the system that we've set up. So whatever system y'all are working on your properties that you're hunting, I highly encourage you to not make it random, if that makes sense. So do your due diligence in the off-season when it comes to scouting your trail camera placement and me and Luke are OCD. Perry's not and sucks, but you know, that's beside <laughs> the point. So like we, me and Luke love like labeling and naming and it's super sexy and clean. I highly recommend it. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's going to make your life easier to track those cams, to know what deer you're seeing, where to know what locations you're seeing, what animals. And this isn't just for whitetail. Me and Perry were looking because the turkey hunting situation on our farm and gobblers not getting as vocal in the towards the mid to late season. And we were looking at some strategies and every strategy that we looked at was talking about trail cams for turkeys and finding roost sites and stuff like that. So don't get focused in on trail cams, just being strictly for your whitetail or your, uh, I don't know if a trail cameras are used in out West as much. I'm speaking mostly Eastern hunting, I know they are, but not in the same sense. But anyway, they can be used for more than whitetail. Um, but just have a system. Come up with a system. Do your due diligence in the off season when it comes to your scouting, your bedding areas, your roost sites, your trails, your your food plots, your water sources, everything where you see the activity of whatever game you're chasing. Those need to be the locations, and then get a mapping system whether it's a fucking topo an aerial map of your property and then put some pins put some locations of where these trail cams are at and it's going to go so far when you start getting thousands of pictures because that trail cam will take photos of nothing when the wind blows and you'll have 110 pictures of grass blowing and it is a dick pain when you don't know which camera is taking what picture rackings it's all the fucking rackings man that's your trailer park reference for all those uh, that aren't familiar. <laughs> Raccoons. That's what that's what I was referring to there. Trailer park boys. Yeah, sorry. Well, in our case, it might be just the damn cattle walking up into the uh, the woods and setting off our trail cams, or maybe your hillbilly cousin bush hogging and flashing the camera. Could be that too. No, what you said though is is good. You, you definitely need to come up with a strategy. One thing I would add on is that obviously for whitetail in particular, uh, if you're having trouble deciding on locations for, for your trail cams, you're just starting out, um, you're late to the game like we were. One thing that's an, that's, a, that's an absolute dynamite spot is if you can find existing rubs, especially if you can find those places that are community rubs where you know deer are visiting year-round. Even if you go out there this time of year, we're recording this now in the middle of June, the bucks may not be out there pawing it up and tearing it up to shit like they will in, uh, you know, mid to late October. But those community rubs, or excuse me, those community scrapes, scrapes, excuse me, are 
year round communication devices for these, for these animals. And they, not just the bucks, but the does, um, the entire population will use those as, as a way to communicate with each other. Who's, who's traveling where, who's doing what, um, and really just what's going on with that deer herd that you have on your property. And it's a great source of Intel. And then you factor in and you start adding layers on top of that when it comes to mineral sites located proximate to bedding areas, as we alluded to earlier. You talk about food sources uh, with food plots and then travel corridors from feed to bed. And you really start to dial in your um, the, uh, the, the habits of your deer herd, what's going on on site. That's a great way to take it take it to the next level and it's something we should have been doing a, a lot earlier it's something honestly that we didn't do for a big uh, one of the biggest reasons which was just money because you know prior to contrary opinion we're not a bunch of big money posers we honestly just didn't have the the resources to devote to trail cameras um for a lot of years there we wish we would have but now that we have like as luke mentioned these new uh, tactic camera reveals i just ordered a few of those i can't wait to get those up i'm going to put them up Next weekend, I'm going up next weekend. I'm going to get all these cameras up. We're going to have way more sites, you know, camera sites up than we did last year. And starting from the end or, you know, mid to late June, all the way up until hunting season, we're going to start to get a lot of intel on our deer herd. And I'm, I just can't wait to see what's going to happen out there. Yeah. And that's a good, that's a good place to, to kind of make this little insert is for those guys that maybe aren't using trail cams or aren't utilizing trail cams to the fullest potential. Not only are you going to be tracking your whitetail species, or your current game species, but like something that we learned on our piece of property, just for example, is we were getting Intel just on the property as a whole. So not specific to whitetail. For example, we started seeing multiple bear sightings, which then leads to more conversations about, holy shit, we have a pretty, big bear population on this property that we weren't aware of because we're not there every day of the week. And so we're not seeing, and we've seen an increase in, uh, sightings. We've seen an increase in things and we've also, but because of the trail cams, we're seeing that in a more abundance. And it's, so it's just another layer of Intel for your property to get a different perspective when you're not out there at nighttime um, whatever. And honestly, like, dude, Luke caught a fucking poacher off a trail cam. And I know a lot of people are hunting private property. I know a lot of people are, are on hunting leases, which are people are still encroach on and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's trail cams are that technology is, yeah, it's not cheap in the sense of five bucks, but it's also not expensive for what you're getting. It's extremely worth it. Yeah, the poacher was kind of wild. Um, I don't remember the specifics. It was two years ago now. And uh, it was actually his trail cam that I pulled all the information off of, which is kind of wild and stupid. Um, well, it's it's not stupid because he put – you mean stupid on his part? Because he put the trail cam on our property. Oh, yeah. He's an idiot. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying it was stupid on your part. No, no, no. So, like, what happened was – so I walked. You know, I was walking the property line as we always do uh, because we have a lot of stands that are located along, on, along that road, the old farm road. And so we, I was walking that and uh, I remember seeing like there was a stand like right there, right on the line. And I was like, well, that's, that's fine. We have stands on the line. Like it's, that's not a big deal. I don't have a whole 
big issue with that. Like that's no problem. Then I remember walking by and there's another stand not too far down. And I was like, well, that's, it's another stand right there on the property line. Eh, not a big deal. Like same thing. We have several stands on the property line. And then I came back another day and there was a trail cam that was on the property line on the fence post. That is the, the property boundary, but it was a trail cam facing on our side. And I was like, well, that's weird, but whatever, like trail cam facing on our side, the stand is facing in a direction where it would be deer coming off of our property. We've got some bedding, like it's still, it's a little bit to the point that, you know, it's eyebrow raising, but it's, it's not that big of a deal. All right. Walk again. I'm walking up and, uh, there's a salt block on our, in the middle of our farm road. And I was like, what? That's not right. Like there's a, a salt block that I didn't put out that I know Perry and Evan didn't put out. This is during season in Virginia. It's illegal to put out mineral or bait or any, of any kind in the middle of our farm road. So I pull up my phone, snap a picture of the, the salt block right there. And then I walk up to that trout cam open it up, pull out the SD card, like, fuck it. Walk down a little bit further. There's another S there's, there's another trail game that hadn't been there before. I pull the SD card out of that walk down. I hunt for a couple hours, but I, I, I can't think about anything else other than these trucks. I just want to see what's on these trail cams. So I go back to the cabin. I left, I left the stand early, like real early, uh, probably three or four hours before fucking, uh, last light because I just wanted to know it was on these cards. I sat there, had a few drinks and was like looking at all this stuff. And you've got pictures of this guy setting out bait that the bears are going after. He's setting out the minerals that the deer are going after. And then I'm going through all these pictures. And next thing you know, I've got a picture of him on our side of the line, dragging a 10 point buck, which is one of the nicest deer probably ever seen on this property. Top, top four, at least. We've, we've, there's been some big deer killed, but top four at least. And he's dragging it through our fucking property line onto the other side. Oh man, I was hot. Absolutely hot. It was, it was wild. It was a, it was an experience to say the least to see all this, uh, notified the game warden went through all that stuff. He, he caught him within a few hours. It's awesome. Shout out to the, the Virginia game wardens. They're, they're on top of it, but it was a, it was a shit show. And I was, I was very angry for a little while. I had some pretty uh, sixth generational mountain trash thoughts there for a little while, but I got past them and we looked, uh, notified the authorities. Yeah. It's one of those things that just goes to, uh, to the, the added value there, because that was something that we would have, I mean, hell, I wasn't even around when you found that. I can't remember what I was doing, but, um, and Evan wasn't around. I think you were deployed at that time. Yeah. It was me, John and Andrew at the farm that weekend. Yep. Yeah, I was in Afghanistan, dude. But yep. I was I was ready to send some hitters your way, man. Well, I had you know John and Andrew. You'd think would be all right, but uh, neither one of them brought pistols that weekend. Huh. Isn't John a conscientious objector anyway? Uh, <laughs> sounds like it to me because that some bitch. I handed him the single shot three fifty seven cowboy action pistol. He was like, "What do I do with this?" <laughs> he didn't have his teeth in. Give him a break reference there on what i mean by didn't have his teeth in john has a fake tooth i think he has his fully permanent one in now it's still a fake tooth but dude he should have never got that he should have always had the ability to take it out 
That, that retainer was insane. That somebody should start drinking. He'd just pull his tooth out and be like, we're, we're fucking drinking now, boys. It's a great party trick. I'll just say that. It's money. He said, like, surprisingly, it slayed with the ladies. I, I wouldn't think it, but <laughs> if anybody yeah. could make it play, it'd be old John Ritter. How did we get to talking about John in such depth? Anyway, trail cams equal poacher. Jesus Christ equals poachers caught on your property. It is true though; it's a valuable tool, obviously for the wildlife. Everything we talked about, but used as a, as a uh, added security measure, it's something we would have never known had had we not been up there. Had we, had you not been up there, and that was one of the things that we've uh, we've been talking with the owners about. It's one of the one of the reasons that well, I shouldn't say it's the primary reason, but it's at least a it's an advantage to expanding your net with the trail cams. You can provide that additional ongoing and, and more of a year round security. If you do have a situation like ours where you're not up there all the time, it's not a property you live on or, or are 10 minutes down the road from, it's just, it's something to consider. It's a relatively cheap, you know, insurance policy. And with that, I think what we started to do is post the signs one posted no trespassing. Cause in the state of Virginia, if you don't do that, it's, yeah, misdemeanor. And if you do do it, it's a felony. So we started posting all the no trespassing signs. And then also just posting like the, uh, this property is surveilled by a cellular trail cam. It's just another thing for folks to think about. And then when you're posting your trail cams, think about having your typical trail cams up. We've got a few, what I call, what we call is like kind of the, the security cams, that one that are up high and then they're positioned over top of the other trail cams and so they can see down as to what's going on and so you've got that extra level of uh security there yeah and the great thing going going full circle back to the uh the reveals which you mentioned earlier is it gives you that added if you, if you do want to utilize one of those cell cams and again we're not breaking any new ground here it's been it's been talked about at length but um with those cell cams and having the ability to not ha- to to actually remotely monitor not only the obviously the wildlife but um, anything else that's going on it's a it's a great advantage it's it's technology that we have at our fingertips i mean hell what a what a time to be alive when we can sit here and sit hours away literally you luke across the country and have the ability to monitor a property not only for the for the game species that we're after but also um you know any problematic situations like you're describing with this poacher it's it's tools in a tool belt it's something to take advantage of and um, it's, it's definitely something that we're, we're doing in our own place here. Yeah. And, and on that, that, that leaves, or that leaves the opening for a good segue into something I want to talk about in the off season prep. And Luke, you kind of touched on something that I wanted to mention with the posting signs, but it, it gets more into that non-direct uh, the, the things in the off season that you have, that's not a direct effect on your hunting. Your, your chores that are directly, that are not directly hunting. Help me out here, Perry. I'm struggling with the, with thoughts, but. I've been struggling with words. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shocking. But basically, you know, like we, again, what it goes into is there's, there's a lot of man hours that get put into managing this piece of property that aren't pruning up ladder stands and aren't putting out minerals. It's road maintenance. It's trail maintenance. It's cabin maintenance. It's doing all the things to ensure that we can still access this piece of property so we can hunt it. And there's a lot of hours that go into that, that I think a lot of people that uh, are starting out hunting, especially if they're doing a hunting lease or if it's private property, 
may not necessarily think about, but I do think that that is a conversation that, that could and should be had when it comes to the preseason prep. Well, the reality is, I, th- I think what you're ultimately getting at, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, it sounds like, and what I know we all feel like is, it's a, it has to be a labor of love at the end of the day. It really is. It absolutely is. So, you know, we all love doing this stuff. A lot of it's not sexy. It's not the, you know, it's fun doing the food plots. It's fun doing the, you know, doing the, the off-season scouting and, and the trail cam setups and the and the mineral licks and the, you know, the different habitat improvement projects and all that sort of stuff. All that is awesome. And that's that's what we all enjoy. Um, but there's also a lot of stuff that is not as fun. It's it's a labor of love. There's just the stuff that goes on with, with managing a piece of property, whether it's a property that you own, whether it's a property that you lease, whatever your specific situation is, there are there are things that um you know, there are things that are that are sexy and there are things that are not. And but I think a common thread that we have here is with this particular piece of property is it's uh it's a connection to it and even the even the unenjoyable stuff in a sense is enjoyable because um, we all have that specific connection to the land itself if you can find that I, I would absolutely encourage anyone to try to you know nurture that because it's it really does become that labor of love that, that gives the meaning and when it comes time for hunting season to roll around whether it's spring gobblers or um, you know the whitetail rut whatever it is wherever you are that's at the end of the day, that's what it all, that's what it's all about. And that's, uh, that's what I think we, uh, we all enjoy. I definitely agree, man. It's, it's one of those things. I mean, we've all spent countless hours behind a chainsaw on a tractor, splitting firewood, fucking pruning trails, man. It's, it seems like it's never ending. It seems like you're never caught up. We're, we're always working behind and trying to catch up, but the rewards pay off. That's, that's like the big thing. That's why we're all here. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect spot to wrap up this one. Perry, why don't you go ahead and uh, shout out the old social media there? It's pretty new. It is new. It's uh, it's new. It's fresh. I finally got on the social media. You guys can find me at perry.r.eisner on the old IG. Um, hit me up. Need a couple more followers trying to get to that 10K. Yeah. I mean, with that one picture you have posted, why don't you have a million followers? <laughs> Not <now>? one post. <laughs> Probably need to add a couple more to that. Just holler at me. I'll send you some pictures. We should just start tagging him in random obscure pictures, Luke. Yeah, hashtag fuck Perry. I was going to say, <laughs> for all you listening, please follow him and just send the hashtag fuck Perry. <laughs> you should look at the comment section on his first post. Oh, it's I've seen rich. it. Dude, it's awesome. <laughs> Hey, if that's what gets me there, man, so be it. That's fine. Hashtag fuck Perry. We got to get Perry to 10,000 followers. That's that's the goal. We're going to get Perry. He's going to have like four posts. We're going to get him to 10,000 followers. We got to beat. We got to get Perry to beat you. That would be even better. I'd love that because I hate my personal page. We do too, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Go follow Evan at Evan.D.Eisner. Spelled I-S-N-E-R. As always, you guys can follow me at loop.d.cox. Uh, go follow the HuntLifty page at HuntLifty Official. We've got a ton of stuff in the works. Uh, 17 July is going to be the drop of the new summer line. It's a little late. There's been a lot of stuff going on, but go hit it up. I fucking hate you, Perry, so much. Just so y'all know, like as we record these, y'all can't see us, but we can see each other. And it's just constant, obscene 
vulgar hand gestures back and forth to try to get the other one off topic, and Perry just succeeded in getting Luke off topic. We're usually successful, and I just was. Yeah, I've been drinking all day. I don't remember what I said about the uh, Hunt, Lift, Eat official page, but if you want to follow us, follow us at, at Hunt, Lift, Eat official. And uh, as always, we appreciate the how do you guys. Thank you so much.